Hello, and welcome to Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host Jeremy, explores the possible repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Come and let's enjoy some tunes. Welcome to the episode. Uh, today, a little bit different episode than normal. We're still going to have a couple tunes, but mostly this is an interview episode. Um, you know, November, it was 30 years since uh, Barry Shears published uh, the book, kind of looking at Cape Breton piping and tradition of piping um, called Gathering of the Clans. Uh, Barry sent me a copy of that book to look at and um, was open to an interview because it is an uh, amazing collection of tunes and uh, so looked at that and then I also picked up a copy of Play It Like You Sing It which is his most recent book although he's got another one on the way which we talk about uh, in this episode. So this episode is going to run a little long so I'm not going to talk too much here. There's going to be a bit of an intermission in the middle as I do some splicing of uh, various parts we were talking about and, uh, and yeah that'll, that'll be that. So we're going to begin with Barry Shears playing a couple tunes from um, Gathering of the Clan on Highland Pipes, just a couple marches, and then it'll just cut right into Barry and I having our conversation. Cheers. been oh it's been all right yeah i've i haven't been playing pipes as much as i'd like to so it's been mm. it was nice to have the excuse of kind of looking through looking through your books man there <laughs> there's something oh. else those are some great collections of tunes like there, there's there's a lot of the um i tried to do a uh, um just a 
some stress bays and reels from Alex uh, from Alex section and boy uh, the people in the class when they heard those old settings of tunes um, it, it, they had a look on their face like I asked them to split the atom because <laughs> you know and it's hard to, to put it across um, the way he played because really nobody plays like he did he had just such a unique style and, and putting all these different grace notes in and and using were they consistent every time that was that was the question I had. Was he always like? Do you have multiple recordings of him playing the same tunes? Is it really precisely yeah. the same? No. Okay. No. And, cool. And that's why when I edited, I, you know, I edited some of the tunes in, in his section in the book, but uh, um, and and they differ again from some of the settings that I got that I previously published. Like there's, I have two tunes from him in the uh, in the Gathering of the Clans Volume One, and. You know, I got that from one tape, and it was hard to hear because of the party. People were hooting and hauling, and so it was just really a, a very party atmosphere. And it was really hard. So a couple of notes I didn't quite get, um, and so I just kind of used my ear and said, "Okay, well, this, I'm going to put that in there." So they were, that's why they're kind of arranged my, by me. But um, you know, if you want people to play these old tunes, you have to put them in modern notation, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, because you know, people that want to go into the dark side, if they get David Gunn's <laughs> Peter uh, from 1876, uh, you'll find a lot of these obscure uh, embellishments that were played really all over the areas I, I, I researched. And it was so nice to see them in the book, and you think, well, I wonder how they played that. And then you hear somebody play, and you think, of course, you know. Really? But, um, yeah, so. Um, well, I guess um, it's sort of funny, I, I, the... I mean, so I guess just congratulations, right? So we're 30 oh, years on <laughs> from Gathering of the Clans. That's a pretty, that's pretty, pretty radical. Um, and I realized, you know, I don't really, I don't know that I had a real strong opinion of what a Cape Breton style is for piping, other than in my head, it's always just been that simple. Well, it's just really dotted and cutted is sort of what it is, is you just, just everything is sort of played dotted and cutted is what my, my brain said. But listening um, to some of those marches and looking through the tunes, I mean, it's funny to me. Some of the dotting and cutting is challenging, but really, it just fe it feels like looking through all the old stuff that I look through. You know, the mm -hmm. eighteen hundred or seventeen hundred stuff, where like it feels comfortable to me rather than challenging. Like, there's things in there, like those marches you sent. Um, there's dotting and cutting, but there's also those runs that feel kind of out of place with modern piping, but feel totally at home if I'm looking at Robert Brender or that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So, so I guess I'm just rambling, but I'm. Can you? What's your like elevator pitch of what makes Cape Breton piping, Cape Breton piping? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. The, first off, Cape Breton piping is kind of a misnomer uh, because people nowadays think it's it's sitting in a chair, playing round, um, and that's what a Cape Breton piper is. But Really, I mean, that's just superficial. If, if you go back and look at the research, which is why I, I did that last book, was to kind of show the different settings. Um, you know, I didn't go deep into the different embellishments because, you know, I, I didn't want to sell, I wanted to sell some copies rather than <laughs> six books of people that, you know, would be interested in that. And so um, it was regionally, it was a regionally based uh, style of playing. And just after my recent book came out there two years ago, a friend of mine contacted me. He had picked up some uh, wax cylinders of, of two pipers recorded in the 1905-1910 period. And both of them were born in the 1850s in Nova Scotia on the mainland. 
right? They weren't Cape Bretoners. So you, you have to realize there's a mainland portion which juts out. It's 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 when we leave North America and then go to Cape Breton and then Newfoundland. And so, um, but these guys had the lovely spread burl that the Ali Curry used to play, some older settings of tunes. Uh, uh, in the case of J.J. Chisholm, very lightly ornamented. I, like, I don't think I've heard a grip played in his mm. entire march. And he plays a three, lovely three-part setting of Culloden um, uh, Day, which we now know as the Inverness Gathering. And um, little tricks uh, where he's not super pointed uh, when he's playing. There's a very lyrical sense to his playing, and I think that's one of the, the main things, or there's one of two main things. There's almost a lyrical approach to the music. Um, and as far as phrasing, uh, tempo and expression, um, it's deeply connected to the step dance tradition, okay. uh, which according to Ella Curry ended up coming to the Western Isles via Ireland. And okay. so I'm doing some research on that now. And, um, uh, Catherine Foley, um, she just came out with a book on, uh, Irish step dancing, a couple of years old. Um, and she's tracked some of the earlier steps to Italy in the, uh, in the 16th or 15th century. And some of those books are still extant. And so, you know, it's, it's like anything else, you know, it starts off in the center and then it kind of spreads out. Uh, and then people put their own stamp on it. And that's certainly, I think, what happened to piping. Um, Alec learned mostly by ear. He learned to read music when he joined the army. Um, but he didn't really, that really didn't really change his style of playing. Um, it was so nice when I heard tapes of Joe Huey McIntyre and sat with Alec to see them use the DRI, um, the Peabrock embellishment that Joseph McDonald described being used in light music. And I'm, I'm hearing examples of this like all over the island, right? Um, and so that was one of the big eye openers. Um, Is that that's the embellishment that that's in Neil Dickey's Clumsy Lover, isn't it? Like in the the second to last. Yeah, he part. might he might he might have one there. I don't I don't play that tune. Um, the piping world in general went crazy when uh, Jim Barry included it in uh, a hornpipe in one of McFadden's books called John McKenzie's Fancy, and it starts off. Uh, <laughs> People yeah. are saying, oh, wow, that's a Peabrock embellishment. Oh, and light music. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And then I, I hear uh, Alec playing it. Uh, he peppers that in there as well as just plain, plain melody notes, which was another eye-opener. Because we're so used to pipe band and competition to, to almost putting a grace note on just every note. Yeah. Um, and you, you get that chirpiness, which when you hear a plain note, it's like a breath of fresh air, especially sure. if, if, it's a, if it's a beat note, right? Um, but now for Joe Huey McIntyre, I mean, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, he, every time he plays an E, he puts a Peabrock embellishment on it. Um, and of course, for modern piping notation, we play down to the melody note on E, we play a G grace note or a G and an F grace note to give you a doubling. But for Peabrock, you're actually coming from the bottom hand up. Yeah. And so for nuances in the music, uh, that's quite effective. Uh, so instead of playing... Oh, I, I, can't, I can't 
can't really play that same tune because I'm sure you, <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. And try. Anyway, it's uh, if my fingers were working better. Um, yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I I feel I I often. I'm I'm just so imprecise with how I approach uh, the music that I'll I, I really have to I, I think my default is the up stuff you know and uh, or maybe not I don't even know I don't know what my default is but I know looking at like William Gunn's book or Logan's book like those eighteen those mid nineteenth century ones like you can see the difference like oh that's not where I expect the grace note to be like where they're yeah. not playing like where G like low G grace notes or low G strikes are just non-existent. Um, no grips. Like you say, like it's just missing out on the, all the stuff. Now I think of like grips and burls being so the norm. And then those mid 19th century ones, and they're just not, they're just not there. Like it's the GDE stuff is what you get. Um, well, and I think what happened at the, in the early, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century. And, you know, I always use the published music as a guide, like yeah. more or less as a roadmap and you can track changes in performance style. Uh, with each and every one of those collections and so when you see robert mckinnon's book come out uh, around the turn of the century henderson's tutor somebody must have gotten a copy of joseph mcdonald's and read oat uh pibrock embellishments used in light music that must mean tara lewis oh, and, and, and lem lewis so let's start popping those in there because yeah. some pipers can but to be honest there is almost a hierarchy of of um ability and so you've got you know a couple of hundred players that are at the top of the tree then you've got like your musical middle class of people that right. you know can get most of them and then you've got this huge subclass of people that enjoy the music but they're no way going to be playing at the level of, of you know the top tier pipers and by taking out a lot of those heavy grace notes you're you're giving them accessibility to the music um, I was reading some of your questions. Somebody had asked, you know, where did I get the idea for the, the tunes in the Gathering of the Clans? Um, uh, I had married into a step dancing family, uh, and and my daughter, both my daughters were step dancing. So I, I had talked to step dancers, and, and really nobody remembered step dancing to the pipes. Uh, they seemed to have had their heyday in the 1930s, and I thought, well, that's a shame. Because I had gone up um, in university in the 1970s, that whole identity building, um, you know, as a Cape Bretoner going to university in Halifax, right away I knew I was different. And, sure. you know, that was reflected in my record collection, which had Gaelic singing, coal mining songs, um, pipe music, um, and Deep Purple, and, uh, <laughs> you know, um, it pretty well ran the gamut. But uh, there was also a time when, um, you know, jobs were becoming increasingly scarce in Cape Breton and, and the music industry was kind of taking off. And uh, Cape Bretoners were struggling for some sort of an identity. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of humor, a lot of music that was coming out at the time. Um, in 1971, Ron McGuinness uh, did a CBC documentary. It was about a half hour long, I think, called The Vanishing Cape Breton Fiddler. Yeah. And uh, he had gone around and really, John Morris Rankin and Kenan Beaton, who would be Kinnon's my age, John Morris would have been a few years younger. They were really only the two <clears throat> younger fiddlers in the island. And so Ron's premise was, we're in danger of losing this wonderful tradition. And yeah. so a lot of people got together and then they organized the Glendale Fiddle Festival in the late 70s. 
and they had a hundred fiddlers. A lot of them were old men, but they had people then all of a sudden stood up and took notice. Um, when I talked about piping for step dancing, I had one step dancer who never step danced to the pipes tell me that I was just trying to ride on the coattails of the vanishing Cape Breton fiddler with the Cape Breton piper thing. Sure. Um, and I suppose to a certain extent, I followed the same formula that Ron did. I said, you know, there was an older style of piping here, you know, which could have, he could have done that thing called the vanishing Cape Breton Piper a decade earlier, and he would have gotten really the tail end of them. Uh, I mean, as it was, uh, I'm So relying. it's the banished Cape Breton Piper is what the, is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, did I, I use some of that? Yeah, a little bit, I guess, uh, maybe unintentionally, but, you know, I, I, Learned in Glace Bay, and, and at that time, 70s, early 80s, um, witnessing my daughter's step dance. And so I started playing pipes for my daughters to step dance, which nobody was doing. Nobody was step dancing to pipe music. And they were only like three and five, right? Uh, and then we'd get gigs around, and, and people, you know, we played different concerts and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, I noticed people were starting to get an interest in this cult, in the connection. Um, because the music has to be played quite differently. Um, the classic point, one of my last years competing, I was warming up in the basement at my mother-in-law's place in Antigonish, and I was playing uh, John Morrison of Asset House the way you'd have to play it at a competition. And uh, my uh, late wife's aunt was upstairs, and she said, Oh, Barry, I've never heard John Morrison of Assenhouse played as a Strass Bay before. And I said, well, no, it's a real. And she just looked at me and says, no, it isn't. <laughs> Meaning the way I was playing it, it was no longer a real. Um, and so that stayed with me. And I started to think, and you know, as you hear other pipers and so people, when you realize you're interested, they send you tapes and you're listening and you're, you're analyzing this music and you're thinking, of course, you know, I had to hear that from a dancer, but she is right because to her, Grace notes didn't make any difference. The tempo and the rhythm that she needed in order to execute the steps, and she was she was a lovely dancer in her day. And um, so then I started thinking, okay, well, what's wrong with this picture? And then, as you peel back the layers of the onion, you realize that ninety nine percent of the pipers today don't really play a reel. They play a strass bay in competition, and this is bands and soloists, and then they play an old form of the of the reel called the Strass Bay reel. Because I'm not a I'm not a dancer, Jeremy, but I can get through a couple of Strass Bay steps and a few reel steps without too much embarrassment. And when I picture back to the way people play John Morrison of Assenhouse, and many still do, I can actually execute um, Strass Bay steps to that. And so for a dancer I'm thinking, oh yeah, they're they're playing a step dance Strass Bay, even though it's for them, it's a reel. And that's when it really, the, the penny really dropped then. And it all started off with John Morrison in a, in a, on the big pipes in a basement in Antigonish, I think 1984. Um, wow. Yeah. Is it, so just to, so you, to, to restate what your, um, what the aunt was saying, like, so it was too, it was too slow. It was too slow or too fast to be a reel. Sorry. I'm, it was uh, it was too pointed, and, too pointed, and too slow. Okay. Right. And so it would be uh, you know competition pipers have to play. Mm -hmm. 
as opposed to. Okay, so you'll you'll hear the difference there. It's a little faster. It's a little. Um, it's not as choppy or pointed. I so I so do I have it. So I have it wrong. Like I have it backwards. The that in my head, it's this idea that it's got to be ultra cut, but that's the opposite of what's going on. Really, it is. It is the opposite. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and if you look at again, I go back to the published collections. Uh, it's at the turn of the last century when you start to see the dot cut come in, yeah. and I think whoever came up with the idea that you know, the Scotch snap was was that prevalent in pipe music. I don't. I don't think they're on the money. The Scotch snap to me, I always thought was a violin term uh, and so you get a, a dot cut or a cut dot rhythm by reversing the direction of the bow okay some cases so that gives you a little a little added umph right we don't have that with piping because we don't have the dynamics so what you find in the 20th century in the written record of music publications is um, the predominance of this dot cut rhythm or the scotch snap right um, and it's particularly um harmful to dance style stress phase um, because you're you're changing you're changing the emphasis and uh, you're becoming more pointed and you're losing that lyrical um, sensibility uh, yeah. one good example that I use is uh, Lady Loudon um, and I know one of the questions that somebody sent in talked about stress phase well Lady Loudon and I, I used to win awards with this was uh, as to the way fiddlers and Alec Curry played it. The Strass Bay, of course, in, in Cape Breton, and most of the, the areas in Maritime Canada, I'm, I'm expanding my research into PEI now, and I'm finding the same predominance of dance piping in communities. Um, and it's amazing the number of pipers in PEI, but that's a separate topic. But um, um, so, you know, what differentiates step dancing from Highland dancing that you see at the games? Um, in the 1880s and 1890s, two brothers by the name of McLennan, one of them was a piper and, a, and an architect, um, they found that dancing in Scotland was a little too rustic. And so they studied ballet technique in, in London and Paris. Of course. And they set about changing um, the way the steps were performed. And so yeah, it's beautiful to watch. I'm not denigrating Highland dancing. Everything I think everything has its place. But if you're doing scissor cuts, you know, your, your elevation has come up quite a bit. And so for a, a piper or a fiddler playing for them, you know, you want them dancing on the beat. And so your music is going to slow down. And, and sometimes it's it's pointed more because, you know, you're trying to, you know, accentuate the note. And so that you see that transition creeping in. The problem with that is the music becomes slower. Uh, 
and it becomes more pointed. Um, when I was on my pipe majors course in Ottawa in 1980 with Archie Cairns and John Carr, um, they had this big fight about Strass bass. And John Carr, who was a drummer, or Carr, um, he said we should write Strass bass as 12 eighths. And Archie said, well, no, no, but they're 4-4. Four, four. And John said, yeah, but you, nobody plays them as a 4-4, four, four, right? <laughs> and so um, anybody that goes through uh, competitive piping or the band, when they come to the Strass Bay, it's point, point, point. I've heard some people say it's not just a dot on the beat note. It's it's essentially two dots. Right. So what happens, you're, you're going from 4-4, four, four, double dotting the theme note, and you're, you're migrating closer to its compound version, which is the 12-8. Yeah. And that's why it's really hard um, to hear competitive bands, especially in the 70s and 80s. Um, there was you know an attempt to vary it up, and they'd go from either from a jig to a strass bay or a strass bay to a jig. And it was very hard to differentiate the two because of the compound rhythm. Uh, sure. I think Captain John McClellan, McClellan uh, he had mentioned judging a competition somewhere, and he said he, he disliked the juxtaposition of strass bays and jigs because they were so similar in structure, in, in rhythm. And that's because we, we held on to the strass bays for so long, we've actually migrated it from a simple time to a, to a compound. <laughs> so for step dancing, of course, in Cape Breton, the old dancers really only lifted their feet uh, an inch or two inches off the floor. Uh, some of the steps require a certain amount of intricate footwork, and so some of the old pipe old dancers would never let the heel of one foot extend, extend past the toe of the other. And so in common with some of the Irish dancing that Catherine Foley had discussed in her book, um, you could perform all your steps in the size of a in the space of a drum head or a two by two yeah. square. Now, of course, there are some traveling steps where you're going side to side, but for the most part, a lot of the a lot of the steps can be ex executed in a very small space. So, but of course, if you're not coming off the ground or off the floor, then you require a a more fluid rhythm, uh, rounder. Some people have called. I mean, you still get the dot and cut, dot and cut, but not to the extent that we pushed it so much in the Strass Bay. Right. I, so this is this is a. This is almost certainly a derailing and foolish question to ask, I guess. But one of one of the the people that I, I knew is into Nova Scotian piping traditions was asking about you know possible influence of Acadians um, and you know Mi'kmaq and people like that. And my brain, when you're describing that step dance, and I feel foolish for I don't know that I've actually ever knowingly watched a you know a step dancer from Nova Scotia uh, in general, but. I just I think about Red River Jig, you know, the kind of Métis indigenous and like it, it's sort of billed always as this uh, indigenous and French tradition, but it's it's just as it's just as Scottish as French, like the dancing and the the fiddle playing, and that Red River Jig style is this real real low to the ground shuffle, you know, and that within within a drum head, <clears throat> man, that sounds about right. Like yeah, I just wonder about how those things are working together or just coincidence or. Influencing yeah. one another. Well, you know, according to Catherine, Catherine Foley and, and other scholars that have been studying dance, um, it was pretty well. Um, I've even come across a reference of uh, Irish regiments and Highland, Irish regiments in particular coming back from the Napoleonic Wars and bringing some of the steps uh, with them. And so I think it was probably a universal style. I mean, we talked, Catherine Foley, you know, executes this better than I would. 
uh, or I could right now, but um, you know, you, you get the center of culture in the Mediterranean, uh, Italian courts, and then it goes, of course, to the upper crust, and then it diffuses, you know, the trickle-down dance right. theory. Um, and so, of course, with a lot of Europeans coming over, yeah, sure, there was a mishmash um, of, of styles and traditions. Uh, we play one reel, um, and I've seen it... Uh, uh, I got it from Alec Curry, but I also got a different setting from Peter Morrison, and, and both claimed that the other, the other guy played it wrong, and they only <laughs> lived like you know as the crow flies, probably you know, twenty minutes from each other. But they were, and they were both Southeast settlements, but they had different ways of playing this. But I heard it called the Indian reel or the the Mi'kmaq reel. Um, was it associated with the dance? Uh, I don't know. Because the, um, the Mi'kmaq were largely Catholic, um, if they lived adjacent to Catholic Scottish communities or Irish communities, there was a, a greater probability of intermarriage than there would be with the Protestant ends. Um, I haven't really found any reference to any sort of cultural exchange, uh, like did the Mi'kmaq or the French in, in influence Highland piping? Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't certainly haven't found any references to that uh, because there were so many Highlanders. I mean, Nova Scotia alone got you know over fifty thousand mostly Gaelic-speaking people uh, in a you know sixty-year period, um, and so they put their stamp on Cape Breton and northeastern Nova Scotia and, and large swaths of PEI. So uh, if there was influence, it would have been uh, minimal, I would think. But that tune. Um, it's in the Ella Curry section, and it's um, and again, you know, I learn tunes, and then you don't look at the music for a while, so you kind of adapt it. But. Uh, right. Yeah, I think, you know, where there's real clear influence of, like, indigenous music on fiddling and things, it's it's in the opposite situation, right? Where there's, like, one one or one to ten lone Scottish or Arcadian, you know, fur traders in a sea of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, their kids go on to play. There's, that, there's an awesome documentary from the 70s of Cree fiddlers from James Bay going to Orkney. Mm -hmm. And, like, and it's sort of a similar thing. This this is something you talk about in the book too. Uh, so this isn't the dumbest transition, I guess. Um, but it's sort of it's the same thing where when these Cree fiddlers show up in Orkney, kind of having both evolved their own tradition, um, but the Orcadian fiddlers part, were kind of convinced that the Cree fiddlers may have been playing an older style anyway. Like their approach to the music was really different than mm -hmm. the really kind of stuffy fiddle orchestras of the, I guess it's the seventies or the eighties in Orkney mm -hmm. where it's just everybody playing exactly the same way. Yeah. And these uh, Cree fiddlers are, you know, they're playing crooked. They're just kind of adding extra beats whenever they feel like yeah. it, kind of stopping whenever it feels right to them rather than yeah. really following everything structured. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, so I guess that was that was the transition into the question about gathering of the clans. Like we get this sense of, you know, in the last since gathering the clans and, and, you know, pretty recently, there's been a lot of attention from Scotland and Scottish piping of kind of valuing what's going on in Nova Scotia. Um, 
And, but it was interesting to me in the introduction, you talk about that happening already in the 20th century, like early 20th century of, you know, people in the Highlands, you know, Highland pipers from Scotland coming over to like look at the state of piping in Nova Scotia. Um, I guess, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I had more information on that. Um, it's, you know, and, and, you know, when I wrote that book in, you know, 1991, again, you know, other information pops up to light. Um, what I found was that uh, I think one of the judges at, in Charlottetown, uh, where Professor Archie Beaton beat all comers, um, he was recently brought over by the North British Society in Halifax. They, they advertised, they wanted to have a permanent piper in Halifax. Um, and so they advertised for David Manson to come over. He was considered in the top five pipers at the time. Um, he only stayed in Halifax a couple of years and then he got a better a better offer from Montreal. So he went to Montreal, uh, money talks. But um, yeah, so, you know, as a Scottish piper, he would of course been called on to adjudicate uh, competitions around the Maritimes. Unfortunately, I've gone through some of the newspaper reports of that competition in uh, in Charlottetown, and it very rarely mentions the judges. Um, I did find uh, one of the earliest Peabrock competitions in Charlottetown in 1863, and it was advertised in the local paper, and pipers had to submit uh, two Peabrock and two marches and two reels as part of their competition regimen. And the piping went on all day, so there must have been a lot of them that played. Yeah. It listed the three first prize winners. Um, the competition was organized by Neil Rankin, who was the son of Con Dooley Rankin. They were, he was the last um, piper from the college um, in Mull, or Call. Um, and Robertson was the judge, and Robertson brought his pipes and played the Kogit Nashi, or War or Peace, and he put oh, his yeah. pipes down, then he sat at the table and proceeded to adjudicate Peabrock. So there's a lot of pipers now that would wish that that practice was reinstated, that the judge would have yeah. to play the tune to show his his ability to judge uh, right. before he sat down to adjudicate you know, his contemporaries. Um, so that was interesting. Um, but uh, so, yeah, these guys, were they were they coming over here to see what was going on? Or was it just Manson that had gone over there and somehow that, that got convoluted? Uh, because he was certainly in Halifax around that time. Uh, and there was a, there was a broader uh, exchange of musicians at that time as well. I mean, Pipers and PEI would be coming over to perform at the North British Society in, in Halifax in the 1880s and the 1890s. And the Ganesh Highland Society, they would send a contingent over for the Highland Games, or the, what they call the uh, uh, Scottish Gathering in PEI. Um, and so there was a lot, a lot more interchange of ideas. And uh, But they were all immigrant gales, or second generation immigrant gales, or in some cases third, third uh, generation immigrant gales. But you talked earlier about the, um, the effects of Scottish uh, uh, fiddling and dancing, etc. Um, and, you know, from the Shetland Islands. An interesting thing, I was uh, at a conference in Alberta, and uh, one of the guys, this was just after the Gathering of the Clans came out, actually it was in the, the mid-1990s, and people were wondering, what's the difference between Scottish, Scottish Strathspeys and Cape Breton Strathspeys? And, uh, Sid Gerling, uh, Piper was there, used to play with the championship 78th uh, Fraser Highlanders. 
we were sitting across the table from each other and he was asking me, Barry, come on, what's the difference? What's the difference? And I said, well, you know, you know, Sid, it's like, uh, it's, instead of playing, but um, uh, uh, like, uh, um, I'm thinking of the tune, uh, Miss Drummond of Perth, right? We knew at home as uh, Gilda Krupa Counts of Clowns, or the regalic words to it. Um, and I, I sang the, the way that they used to play it, or that bands would play it, and then I, I sang the way that I had always heard it. Uh, did um, the, uh, um, Anyway, I was I was jigging this at the table like edum beaten die dum dee dum ba dee da let 'em bottom beaten die dum ba hidum bitten die when one of the representatives from the Yukon, Ron, was there and he said, Oh my goodness, Barry, he said, I haven't heard anybody sing like that since my father passed away and I said, Really? Because, you know, he's he's uh, uh He's got a lot of uh, native blood in him, right? And uh, I said, really? Uh, how would your father pick that up? And it turns out his father was a grandson of Colin Frazier, who was the Hudson Bay oh, uh. paper. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, Ron said, oh, my father used to sing like that all the time, and my sister would dance. And I'm like, <laughs> and you know, I'd been to conferences with Ron, like, probably three times, three years before that, and never had any sort of inkling that, uh, you know, I was sitting with one of Colin Frazier's descendants. Um, That's wild. Yeah, but I mean, you know, that type of jigging or singing was, you know, he recognized it right off. Uh, whereas, you know, pipers that come from a competitive background find that kind of foreign, really. Yeah. Um, That's how much the world had changed in the 20th century, so. Huh. Yeah, that's cool. I so I'm um, well. I don't know. I've I've yeah. Those Gaelic the Gaelic songs or the Gaelic lyrics to these tunes. The I've had uh, the night we had the goats stuck in my head ever since looking through because I found it in Elizabeth Dixon's manuscript with the lyrics and mm -hmm. like I don't you know I don't speak or read Gaelic particularly well but seeing the English translation like well that's been like the night we had the goats the three goats the three goats the night we had the goats three goats like yeah that's it forever that's in my head now that's just gonna live there well uh, it's certainly not high high poetry <laughs> right. um, and you know it was denigrated for a long time but I was talking to a um, uh, a woman in Benbecula a few years ago I was over talking to her about Porsche de Bale and and she said you know um it's a good way to learn basics of the language uh, yeah. for kids. Not only, you know, because a lot of kids, um, they gravitate towards, you know, musical little nursery rhymes, right? Sure. Um, and so you you don't know it, but you're learning basics of, of sentence, sentence construction and, and, yeah. um, and verb usage, right? Uh, and so, yeah, they're repetitive and they're kind of nonsensical. Um, I'm, I'm working on, uh, with some friends of mine, trying to translate another Porsche de Ville, and it's, um, <laughs> talked about this there people are going to town and they see this baby and the baby's got a flat head and so everybody takes in the verse they compare who the he's not much of a looker i guess this baby uh and so they're saying oh he looks like johnny archie or he looks like this other guy and he's got a flat head the poor guy when he grows up and you know it was a great way for satire uh a lot of a lot of those tunes or the words i really had local meaning and you know they would they would elicit a lot of spontaneous laughter at a party or whatever um, when the person being you know poked <laughs> was there, yeah. wasn't there, oh, wasn't there yeah. <laughs> yeah uh but it was just um 
like I say, what, what I found when I, when I was selecting tunes for the Gathering of the Clans, again, I go back to my interest in piping for step dancing. And, and you know, I had read Alistair McGilvery's research. I had, I had looked into Helen Creighton's research. And I found that um, a lot of the fiddlers that they were trying to get, you know, a good number of them were, were pipers as well. Like they were dual instrumentalists. And I thought, well... Okay, and so I started going through, I started learning the violin in 1981 from Carl McKenzie in Sydney at the Gaelic Society, and the first, one of the first tunes he gave us to learn was Brenda Stubber's reel, who I thought, oh, that's a great reel, except I wasn't playing a C natural at the time, so I arranged that last bar uh, to kind of bring it up a little bit, and I published that, and that's been since copied and republished and everything else, but uh, that's where that tune came from. Um, it's such a good tune, man. Like, yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I, I don't know, in my head, I, I knew it had like some fiddle origins. Um, but yeah, it was it was surprising coming across it like, oh, hey, this is where that tune comes from. Yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it must have been everywhere like within less than a decade. Because I was hearing it, because I know like it's on Ashley McIsaac's album with a piper playing it, mm-hmm. um, Gravel Walk into Brenda Stibberts, which is like just such a good set progression. Or, you know, that's always been when I was a kid, that was it. But I had heard that before McIsaac put it out on, on Helter's Celtic. Like, it was already around, so it must have been, like you said, just immediately. Like, came yeah. out and got in the clans and almost... And you know, you, you can use that as a classic example of how quickly a good tune will spread. Uh, my yeah. brother was working in Spain, and he was walking by a pub in Galicia, and he heard uh, Piper's there playing Brenda Stubbard's reel. <laughs> uh, although Jerry, you know, Jerry had a great ear for, for a good tune. He was quite a tunesmith. Um... I, you know, when you get deeper into the music, Brenda Starbert's a great tune, but there's a little hint of John Morrison of Ascent House, and there's a little hint of Cicely Ross, who was uh, Willie Ross's daughter. Um, but still, it's it's a standalone tune, of course. And and so now I do a slide on the uh, instead of the C natural. Um, yeah. So when I started looking at that one, I thought, gee, I wonder how many more fiddle tunes might 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 be actually pipe tunes. Because when you talk about fiddling and how I think uh, piping had a big effect on Cape Breton fiddling, and that when you talk to fiddlers, they sometimes put a wild note in, like a high B, um, really just kind of brightens it up. So I started looking at tunes. Um, Kate Dunley had uh, put a book, Traditional Fiddle Music. It was a little tiny book. And I started going through there, and I thought, okay, well, if I just play a high A instead of a high B, that's a pipe tune. Uh, yeah. And then I started cross-referencing those with um, the David Glenn collection. I, I bought a, yeah. a big hardcover, all 17 books. And, uh, you know, Kate uh, Dunley and her uh, partner at the time, they just said traditional reel, traditional stress bay, traditional reel. Anyway, I was finding them in the Glenn collection and in the Gun collection. And, you know, fiddlers are not really that good at tune titles. I mean, you sure. mentioned Ashley. <laughs> he recorded that great uh, Bobby McLeod jig called, uh, or it was a march, uh, John McKenzie of Loch Torridon, or sometimes Murdo McKenzie of Loch Torridon. But he didn't have a name, so he called it Creme de Menthe. Uh, you know, so <laughs> names get dropped, and all of a sudden the traditional label is put on it. So I, I wrote to Kate, and uh, when, when she did an update of it, uh, she had cross-referenced some of the ones which were popular. And again, I think that comes from the the dual musicianship of, uh, of fiddlers and also being pipers. So 
I immediately assume that fiddlers put in a high B just to differentiate themselves, right? Like, oh, well, yeah, this is a pipe tune, but pipers can't do this. Yeah. Like... <laughs> well, well, actually, um, a friend of mine who lives is from Pictou County, he told me he saw a chanter, a pipe chanter years ago in Pictou County that had the thumb. Had the thumbnail for Yeah, the, so they were, in the playing, back they were playing um, high Bs on some tunes then. More than, is that like a singular thing or have you come across a couple channers like no, that? No, with, and I've never, I, I cut you off. I cut you off when you were in the middle of telling that. So just, just tell the listeners like what's going on here. What's this crease in the back A? Right. And so uh, I've never actually seen the chanter, uh, but okay. I was told uh, by a friend of mine who lives actually in BC now. He remembers as a kid seeing a chanter. Um, so if, if you set up your, your chanter read soft enough um, and you, you cover half of the high A hole and increase pressure, you can actually extend um, the nine notes up to ten by including a high B. Uh, they were calling them pinch notes, and I think yeah. you, you had done some great work on... And, and I'm, I'm struggling. My first, I can do it. I've actually... Um, I actually just... Pretty successfully recorded a tune that uses a high C as well, kind of doing the same thing. Um, it's sort of funny that that chanter read is is sort of kaput. Like, and it, it definitely, I think it shortens the life of the chanter read significantly. Mm -hmm. um, I remember hanging out with Tim Britton, who's a Illin pipe maker and and a Highland piper as well um, here in the here in Iowa. It's so funny. He was he was doing a performance i think during covid so it was like just him alone in a stadium or whatever but he's mostly like playing flute and illin pipes and then he just like busted out highland pipes and played a pbrook like and we're just gonna finish with this like <laughs> all right way to go tim um but when he was working on my illin pipe read he took it all the way up to the third the third you know he took it up to the third octave rather than just the the, the full two octaves mm -hmm. and i didn't know the illin pipe channel could go up there and he was saying yeah that's just it breaks the read in a lot faster yeah um and it really does i've so i've been I've been playing uh, more like band concert pitch channer because I don't have a good B flat setup right now. Yeah, and uh, and I did the same thing. I was like pinching all the way up to like high high E, which is just it just sounds like a tuning or like a dog whistle at that stage. Yeah. But it's it's definitely breaking the read in faster. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think John Daly didn't he say he has an old channer too that might have that um, that thumb line. He, um, he might. He may. I'm not sure. Um... The the other guy, the, uh, you had mentioned uh, Mackenzie Bailey and the and the Irish pipes. Um, yeah. He actually had a lorry chanter, and he put a high B key on it, yeah. uh, pipe chanter to extend the range. Um, but you know he made all his own reeds, um, and he used to put um, he used to put copper staples on his on his pipe chanter reeds uh, to make them softer. But his pipes are still in existence. Um, See, he was in the Marine Artillery, and they, they fought on land, but they traveled with the Navy. And so, you know, he had seen action in, <clears throat> um, he was at the relief of Khartoum, the bombardment of Alexandria. Uh, he was on the West Coast, uh, 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 the Niger River Delta. So musicians were sought after in the Navy, and where he learned that he was already a, fit, a violinist before he left Nova Scotia and joined the Marine Artillery. But I suspect he learned to play the Irish pipes uh, when he was on those long voyages to to the Antipodes and to West Africa, etc. And uh, the set was made by Leo Rosum's uncle, uh, okay. and so I have some pictures of that. Um, there's a the chanter has a bit of a stop on it. I showed it to one of the piper pipe makers down in uh, uh, 
the Piper's Gathering a few years ago, and he said he had never seen that particular device. He said it wasn't common to use that. I don't know what it was. It's almost like a little cup that slides on the end. I can send you a picture oh. of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, Taylor, like, a lot of alien pipe sets have those little, like, single hinge um, coverings for the bottom, so you... You know, it can conceal the bottom of the chanter. In theory, easier, but I think it just makes it harder because you've got one more thing to fail yeah. rather than just putting it on your leg. Right. Um, but yeah, if it's a sliding thing, I always wonder. I, I don't, you... don't. Well, I better not okay. look at the picture again. But it's just, right. that, uh, it's just that he had looked at that and he said, oh, that's unusual how they set that up. So uh... I just, I wonder, you know, one of the things that, you know, sets Illin pipes apart from some of the other there's lots of things that set it apart but you're missing that leading note right like the the low g equivalent on a highland pipe channel we don't have but on pastoral pipes they did when there was that foot yeah. right so yeah. really old irish pipes when we still call them pastoral have that foot so you can get the leading note um and it seems like a lot of them were removable right where you could just yeah. kind of pop it on and off yeah but, um, yeah hmm. so so he you think he learned how to play illin pipes on a ship like what a nightmare that would be though for well, tuning. Like, well, he was, he was pretty musical. Uh, you know, yeah, always on the ship. I mean, he he also found time to learn to play the pipes. Uh, he was taught by the um, um, by his wife uh, and his father-in-law. His father-in-law was Sandy McLennan, um, who was a gold medalist. Um, and so he actually uh, uh, Bailey actually got himself recruiting sergeant in uh, in Inverness so he could pursue Pebrock more. Um, so yeah, you're, he was a, he was a tremendous musician. Um, I have a flyer. He was playing in PEI in 1913. He would sing, uh, Gaelic songs, Scots songs, and he entertained on the violin, the Highland pipes, the border pipes and the Irish pipes. And Whoa. He, it actually says border pipes on the... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Does it say uh, border pipe or it might say real pipes. I'd have to check it. But if you, if you go to the website, uh, capebrettonpiper.com, and go to the history section and just look up um, Mackenzie Bailey. It talks about his career, and there's a there's a photo of that flyer that was sent out. It's like an advertisement brochure, right. and it shows some of the medals he won for violin playing in in uh, in Scotland. Um, wow. So he was quite a musician. Yeah. Yeah. So Catherine Catherine McLennan, Catherine McLennan yes. uh, his wife, who you think taught him. Do we know any more information about her? You kind of had a list of the people that she probably taught in yes. in you know yeah. in Canada, but yeah, uh, not not a whole lot. I know that uh, <laughs> she was kind of a uh, crusty uh, woman, I guess, because you know I uh, I'm descended from home children, and I did I did come across um, during my research a woman who was sent to the Bailey home. Uh, as a British home child, and she's the one that had to get the fire going in the morning. And, uh, oh. Said Catherine was not that nice to her. Although Mackenzie Bailey actually took her once to visit his brother in Earltown, which would have been twelve miles away. That was the first time she was ever off the farm because oh. uh, he was away quite a bit in vaudeville, um, and I have a schedule on that website as well. And um, and he was going around teaching piping and performing in PEI, uh, and his son. Uh, Alexander or Sandy, he ended up marrying a girl from PEI, had two children, and she died young. But they would play at dances with piano and pipes and piano and violin. And uh, and she actually played a set of those, uh, whether they're real pipes or border pipes, I have no idea. They're currently in Western Canada, and I, I'm trying to get a suitable photograph of them because they're bellow-blown, right? So, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. 
Now, when you talk about pinching notes, uh, the thing I noticed about Alec for his particular style of playing, he could get more s sounds out of a chanter than I've ever, ever heard anybody before. Um, and I think that was part of the unique fingering style that he had. Um, I think probably what happened when, when the bands started coming on in the mid-19th century, they kind of dumbed piping down a bit. Uh, yeah. had, you know, if you're going to have a band, you have to, have, every, you have to have unison playing. And so you had this wonderful, varied tradition, and then you had pipe band movement and published collections kind of becoming a funnel. So by the time you hit the 20th century, you have this perfectly formed, standardized method of playing. Um, and then and that's poured out too uh, by uh, both the printed collections that came out and a lot of the field uh, field recordings that I've either done or people have sent me. Um, it was just a wide variety of playing techniques and tune settings, some of which I you know put in that last book. Um, you know, I did a workshop for the Western United States Pipe Band Association uh, last month, and you know, stress bass. You know, I kind of went through the whole thing. I, I did find examples of the Strasbe Minuet, of course, which had Gaelic words, which was another was a couple's dance, um, and then the Strasbe Reel, and then they had you know Strasbe's that would just be show tunes, like you know Lady Madalena Sinclair. It's not a step dance tune, right? It's more a slow pastoral Strasbe. So why all of a sudden we just have you know there's a Strasbe and there's a Reel and there's no variations in that. Whereas in the 19th century and part of the 18th century, it was a lot broader. So I'm not I'm not denigrating modern piping. I'm just saying let's look at you know what came before and we could be having a lot more fun. Right. Uh, There's a really a diversity of experiences before. So I, I got the sense I got really excited kind of looking through the collection and reading the introduction, um, kind of feeling like somehow. Cape Breton pipers missed out on on that, but they didn't. Basically, they they went through the same kind of. In my head, there's a kind of straight line from military piping to competition piping to, like, everything's kind of get that, like you said, that, that narrowed vision of what piping should be. And Nova Scotians went through the same. Yeah, same, but same thing. for us, it, it came at a much later date. Um, okay. And and so, like, I talk about the heyday of the dance piper in, in Cape Breton and northeastern Nova Scotia, and you know, it, it ended earlier in PEI. Um but it held on again longer in the west coast of Newfoundland. Um, you know, I interviewed MacArthur Pipers who played for step dancers uh, and square sets. Um, and so you had these, uh, there was that parallel piping culture in the 20th century. See, even though there's, there's very little economic uh, advantage to living in Cape Breton, once they closed the coal mines down and, and shut the steel plant down, um, you know, um, but you know, that's what attracted, I mean, I'm gonna backtrack a bit on that. So when we look at piping in Cape Breton and Northeastern Nova Scotia, because they were all intertwined, you had that first big wave of Highland immigrants coming over with their, with essentially a soloist tradition of dance music, um, community piping, you know, for births, christenings, uh, laments at funerals. And of course, the, the pinnacle of, of a piper would be playing for social dancing. That's what they did, right? It, it didn't cost anything. You didn't need to have a kilt. You didn't have to have fancy shoes. People would dance with their bare feet sometimes. So it was a low cost method of entertainment. Um, and there were over 80 immigrant pipers just to Nova Scotia and Cape Breton in that immigrant period. And that was passed on. 
nobody bothered with us, right, until industrialization. Coal mining was small scale, but towards the end of the 19th century, it was much larger. And a lot of people were either, you're left with two choices. If you didn't inherit the farm, you could go work in the coal mines or go to the Boston states, which was anything any, anywhere south of Maine. Because sure. uh, they ended up in California and uh, west and Utah. Um, so they were all over the place. Um, what happened with the industrialization, though, it's coal mining, uh, uh, steel plant, uh, light manufacturing, the development of the railway, was a second wave of immigrant pipers coming in, much smaller than the first. And they differed in the fact that they were largely English-speaking or lowland Scots. They had military or pipe band experience. And that's where we see the nucleus of these pipe bands develop in the urban centers, uh, like Halifax and um, <clears throat> Picto and in, in Cape Breton. Um, and so you have a parallel piping culture that existed for much of the first half of the 20th century. Um, of course, we know which one, which side won, uh, because like I say, when I was, you know, trying to find friends of mine and even people that were like 10 years older than me, you know, did you ever step to pipe dance, uh, to pipe music? No, I never, never heard tell of that before. But I had talked to old people and they described these scenes yeah. of people, you know, the burnt piper, John McKinnon in Inverness in the 1920s, playing for square sets and then tuning his pipes up and then playing for solo step dancers and then tuning his pipes up all afternoon, right? And so, you know, and then I was looking at the music and I was thinking, what's wrong? But why, why have we lost that ability? And so when I was putting the first book together, The Gathering of the Clans, I said, okay, if I'm going to get people to play this, I need a couple of things. I have to establish a historical link, which is why I wanted to put those photos in and talk about the famous pipers that come over. <clears throat> and mentioned step dancing. And then I went to the Glen collection and picked a couple of tunes out of there because you couldn't get them online like today, right. 19, right. you know, 19, late 1980s. And I started acquiring old collections of books. And then I went to the fiddle repertory. And, uh, and I'm not the first to do that. I mean, David Glenn, if you go through his collections, you look at the number of fiddle tunes that have been compressed to fit on a nine-note scale. Right. Um, a friend of mine, Charlie Brown, he was in the band with me, you know, he played fiddle, tin whistle, pipes, um, and concertina. <clears throat> he gave me two tunes, um, uh, Heather Hill by Danner and MacDonald, arranged for the pipes, and uh, John McNeil, or Big John McNeil. So they're included in there. Because when I play those at Cayley's, people immediately recognize them because they've heard them on the violin for the last 50 years. Sure. And then I went to Kate Dunley's book, <clears throat> and I said, okay, ooh, that's a pipe tune. I'm just going to get rid of that high B uh, or make a couple of other subtle changes, put grace notes in, and right away I got a dandy dance tune. And people would be familiar with it. Tunes like um, Coat de Mort Alicage or you know, Elizabeth's Big Coat. Uh, you know, and I'm going around talking to some of these older people, and tunes sometimes were associated with different areas. I played that tune for uh, um, two Matheson brothers uh, in River Dennis. And I said, did they play this around here? And they said, no, oh, no, that's a Mabu tune. So, you know, we never played that one here. We had our own tunes. That was that was kind of from over there. Um, and then in the meantime, you know, as years progressed, I found another another setting, um, well, a totally different setting with a similar title uh, over in the North Shore. So it's it's been, uh, you know, it's, it was great to have that first book out because people started learning tunes from it. 
And I was looking the other day, the, the fourth edition went, it went to press in 2007. Uh, and so now I'm just shy of the 4,000 mark. Uh, I haven't figured out exactly because now I just get, you know, 25 copies here, 50 copies there, 10 copies. I still sell a few copies here and there. Um, the big promotion for that, of course, was um, uh, um, people like Scott's uh, Highland Supplies. You know, they bought, I think, 900 copies over the first 10 years, right? So, <clears throat> or close to it. Uh, no money in that. Like I mentioned in the email, it's a, you know, you make a dollar a book by the time everything is done. Um, so I'm quite happy with it. Uh, the, the unintended consequence, and I didn't think this was going to happen, as people started buying the book, then they said, well, would you come out and show us how the tunes are played? And that's where I, I first started getting out to Seattle. I've been teaching there on and off since the late 1990s done workshops in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and Utah, and, and Florida, and Vermont, and, uh, and Oregon. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I met some wonderful people, and it all really started off with that little white book. <laughs> yeah, so. it's a great book. Like, well, I guess that's a, that's a good, that's a good kind of follow-up. Like, you've been, this isn't your only book, obviously, this is the first one. We've been talking a lot about Play It Like You Sing It, I think, kind of. Yeah. How how has your approach to how has your approach to like publishing books about this changed? Has it changed? And you have a new collection coming out pretty soon too. Yeah, right? hopefully uh, February it. of next year, which is uh, okay. uh, <clears throat> what I tried to do with the last book, the last double volume play, like you sing, yeah. sing it, was to to concentrate on nineteenth century music in regional settings, right? Because like I say, when I when the first book came out in 1991, people would get it and say, "Oh, are you interested in that?" Because I have this old tape of you know, my granduncle playing in 1956 or something, right? Um, and I'm thinking, "Yeah, I'd love to get a copy of that." Or, you know, the late Duncan McIntyre said, "Well, I've got you know reel to reels of Joe Huey playing my father," and I said, "Oh, I'd love to get those." And so I get copies of those, and then you're hearing these tunes that you never heard before. Um, and so I'm trying to rebuild a repertory was largely regionally based of different settings of tunes and some that you know either were composed here or had been forgotten in Scotland um, and that is still building I've always yes. collected tunes and so this next book coming up in 2022 will take us from the 19th century into the 20th and early 21st century um, so I've got a lot of tunes from friends of mine uh, some that I didn't know they died before I was born um, so it takes you from the post-World War I period, you know, the people were composing tunes and then right up through the 40s and 50s, right up until just actually a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and then I have a small section on PEI music because I've, I've, I've moved my attention over to there. It's harder to do because I'm 3,000 miles away, but there's a few surprises there, <laughs> uh, like uh, Angus Mackay's uh, uh, grandnephew. Uh, played there until the 1930s. Uh, oh, really? Of course, the Rankins, uh, Con Dooley was there, and I have a bit about him. And his son, Neil, set up the first Peabrock competition there in 1863 um, and was trying to get a Peabrock society started to preserve the music. So in a certain extent, they were trying to uh, pursue the aims of the Highland Society of London. Um, yeah. And somewhere, someplace, there's got to be an old trunk with all this stuff in it. Right. Uh, I suspect the uh, 
the the uh, fabled third third volume of the Campbell Counterrock is probably either in PEI or Nova Scotia, somewhere if it hasn't been thrown out. And uh, I've got an I've got an idea where it might be. I'm not going to tell that to anybody. <laughs> uh, I've approached the person several times, but she's adamant. You know, there's nothing like that there, and and uh, and so yeah, she's rather suspicious of any sort of research is coming by. Anyway, you never know. It might turn yeah. might turn up later. But uh, it's been a fun ride, and uh, like I say, uh, when I look back and I see the number of people now that are, you know, some people, a lot of people are trying to play step dance music, and uh, and they don't have the benefit of my learning because they didn't learn from an old piper or go around, and, and it's not like they couldn't. I have some friends, and, and they told me, they said, well, why should I do that when you're going to do it and put the tunes out? And I said, yeah, well, you know. That's the story of my life. Why does anybody want They know I'm going to do it anyway because I'm interested in it. And so why bother do it themselves, I guess. But papers are lazy <laughs> and cheap. You said it. I, well, yeah, you said it. I didn't. What the, uh, like, one of the, one of the people uh, that I reached out and asked for questions had something that you kind of touched on there a couple times of, like, what is the key? Is there a way to actually... Can I just, is there a trick to reading the music and getting it right? Or is it, it really is, you, you kind of have to look at the music, but also hear it to, to try to capture that sound correctly or? Certainly that's, that's the best way uh, is to have, yeah. you know, these are still your best teachers. Uh, yeah. And you know, yeah, I remember doing piping workshops from the competitive style for the Pipe Band Association home and you'd get kids that had been playing for three or four years, you'd give them a new tune and inevitably they'd say, sir, can you play it so I can hear how it goes? And we really haven't changed that much. Right. We don't get a lot of musical theory. So it's uh, what I try to tell people now when I do workshops is uh, it all comes down to templates. Um, and that'll give you a basic structure. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of nuances as far as technique that require uh, a certain amount of, of listening and practice to get it. And it, it depends on which style. I mean, I had I looked at the questions and somebody was wondering about piping from the Judic area in Cape Breton. I don't have any Judic specific um, uh, examples unless they come down through the violin tradition. The violin tradition continued, whereas a lot of the old pipers like McDougall and, and McMaster and those guys died. And uh, even, I think there's a family there still known as the pipers, but nobody in four generations has played the pipes, but still they have that uh, sure. that nickname to them. Um, so yeah, what you see in Play It Like You Sing It is all I could get from people giving me tapes and some of my own field work. Um, it was so refreshing to uh, to go see Leonard MacArthur on the west coast of Newfoundland, and, and I wanted to record them, and they didn't want to play in front of me, they were too shy, and they said, well, you play first, and so I played my pipes, and and Leonard said, oh, can I try your pipes? Because they're going better than mine. And we went out on the step, and he started to tune his pipes to E, right? <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. 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 Which is mentioned in um, in Logan's book. Uh, but it's been yeah. poo-pooed ever since, saying it's impossible to tune pipes to E. Anyway, I said to Leonard, I said, that sounds good, Leonard. Why you, can I ask you a question? Why are you tuning the pipes to E? And he looked at me and goes, what's an E? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, Leonard played, he plays violin, pipes, and I think he might play guitar a bit, um, all by ear, yeah. right? And so uh, 
Yeah, but they had, you know, some tunes I got from them and from their brother Jimmy and, and from Sears. Uh, and again, you know, that's a that's a recent tradition. I'm talking to people that either went to dances and danced to pipe music or actually played for, for dances themselves. Yeah. Um, so I try to explain when I talk about templates, um, music is written in bar lines, but the bar lines don't reflect the phrase, right? Yeah. You'll find that... Uh, the phrase ends just before the end of the bar, and then whatever note or two eighth notes that are there, really you steal a lot of the time and put it on the end, and then you use that almost as you're taking a breath to get into the next phrase, right? Yeah. So that's what's very confusing. We've become, we don't get enough musical theory. We just get enough to make us dangerous. Because uh, <laughs> we play in a, when I was learning the violin, I went to see Elmer Briand, whose uh, mother was a Gaelic speaker. He was an Acadian, and his father played the pipes a bit, but he played the violin. Wonderful man, a wonderful composer, and a nice fiddler. Um, I went over with my violin, and I, played, I, I said, Elmer, I'm looking for some lessons. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, he said, do you play? I said, well, I'll play a couple of tunes. And so I played, um, you know, straight up, um, um, Cutting, cutting bracken as a Strass Bay, right? You know, yeah. da -dum, and he looked at me and said, you're a piper, aren't you? And I said, <laughs> I said well, how'd you? yeah, I said, I am, but how'd you know that? He said, because you're playing that tune, he said, in a straight line. <clears throat> and he said, music isn't like that. And I thought, well, there you go. And, uh, and so you go back to these tunes and it all comes down to the, yeah, you're going to play off the music. But when I talk about templates, you, you realize it's not just playing straight, right? You have these little nuanced phrases. Sometimes it's a one bar, sometimes it's a two bar. Um, and this for the if you hear somebody playing it or somebody singing it, then you say, oh, well, you know, it just makes perfect sense. Um, but if you've got, you know, two lines of music in a reel and you're playing it as written, that's what Joe Neal says. You're missing out on the, the taste or the flavor of the way it goes. Yeah. So... So I've had to, you know, and I talk about you do this for quick steps, like or you know, uh, marches, jigs, um, especially. Um, I've heard uh, tapes of um, uh, Rory, Danny, uh, Danny Roryak, and McDougal down north playing jigs, uh, where he doesn't start the first note with a G grace note. And if you go to like Glens and Guns, you'll find their jigs. The first note is plain, and the G grace note and the and the D grace note comes on the next two notes. Instead of playing, he plays. Right? Just little things you can do. I mean, you can't do it in competition because it's prescribed. But you know, if you if you want to have us like one of the one of the people that wrote the question said they have a little couple of sets of Cape Breton stuff. Wonderful. <clears throat> Keep it separate, um, and then you know, competition again. Competition music is really templates as well. <clears throat> There's really, if you want to win a prize, there's one way to play a march, and there's one way to play a strassbane, and there's one way to play a reel and a jig. Um, but, you know, if you're playing solo and for yourself or on small pipes or something, then, you know, you, you're at liberty to, you know, to massage the, the tempo, um, you know, work, work around the phrasing, uh, what appeals to you. Uh, throw some vibrato in or... Hey, so yeah, like I said, we're, 
just going to relocate a couple bits of conversation here. So I'm just coming back in because there's sort of no clean way to do it. And this is as good a spot to any just to kind of follow up on some things. Um, you know, we, we do have this bit of a discussion about uh, Major Bailey's Illum Pipe Chanter and that kind of interesting foot. Uh, Barry sent me some pictures of it. The set of pipes were made by um, some relative of Leo Rousen's. He thinks his uncle. Um, and yeah, that foot joint is super gnarly. It's rather than, you know, a single hinge uh, foot joint, or not foot joint, but um, stop, stop joint, stop valve, stop flap, whatever you call those things. Um, rather than a single hinge, it is. It's just, it seems like it's a, a little metal cage that would kind of slide up and down. You can't see it close enough to see if there's a spring or something in there uh, in the photo we sent. But I'll put that in the show notes as well. I also was looking at the advertisement that uh, Barry was talking about of Major Bailey. And uh, yeah, it's indeed, it's he's going to perform on um, Lowland Pipes is what it says. Which, you know, after talking with uh, James McDonald Reed a bit... It seems like lowland pipes was sort of the norm for, you know, what to call the bellows blown pipes that is kind of sometimes known as real pipes or border pipes or lowland pipes, but lowland pipes seem to be pretty darn popular um, in the 60s, still, 1960s, and clearly when um, Belial was, Bally was playing them too. So anyway, so we're going to go back to Barry, kind of finish out the conversation here, and um, kind of transitioning to... Um, Barry's talking about his new collection of tunes, um, that book that's going to talk about um, Prince Edward Island Pipers and kind of other locations, I think is sort of what we were talking about when this thread picks up again. Um, but, uh, yeah, so were there other areas that probably had unique style of playing? I'm sure there were. Uh, right. But as time goes by, people stop playing. Uh, and because a lot of them couldn't read or write music, a lot of that tradition has died. So yeah. I'm really quite happy and fortunate that I managed to grab the last of it. Um, because, well, Alec died in 1998. Um, he would have been the last person to learn by ear beginning. But, you know, you know, I don't play like he does. A couple of things I'll show at a workshop just to show some of the alternate fingering techniques. Like he played a tune, it's in the book called... Um, uh, the forest going afire and it's all bottom hand work and when I, I videotaped him he keeps the C finger down right um, which is false fingering according to, right. right according to the rules yeah according to the Piper's Bible and I said Alec you keep that C finger down why do you do that and he, he goes uh, well there's no C in that tune and I'm thinking yeah so why would you lift the C finger uh, now, I've talked to Ulian Pipers, you could probably confirm this, and they tell me, some of them have told me that, you know, if you're not using that note, you just leave the finger on the chanter, kind of as a anchor. Um, yeah. And so, that's what he was doing. But yeah. some of the tunes he played, you know, I've tried to get them as close as I could. They're not quite C natural, but they're not quite C sharp. Uh, that's why I'm thinking that it wasn't just nine notes for a lot of these Pipers years ago. They were imitating the human voice, and your hum the human voice is not restricted to nine notes. I, I always, I keep on, the the really early, uh, I guess the third season, third or second season of the podcast, which is, you know, locked away in an embarrassing vault now, but I was comparing, like, Donald McDonald's tunes 
I like looking at Neil Dickey's stuff and this idea of like kitchen piping, like we're doing this new thing with bagpiping. It just always struck me as like, well, that's absurd because like this is what Donald McDonald's tunes are too. Like, yeah. and you know, I, you know, I love I love Gordon Duncan's stuff. Um, but yeah, it's that same thing where he's sort of praised for adding more notes to the channer. Like, well, that's it's it's really like you said. There's really that funnel effect where there were so many diverse approaches to playing and um, and performance in different music styles that just got condensed to nine notes and yeah, yeah it's just I don't know it's a it's weird to think of um, it's weird to think how things rather than becoming more it's not weird it's not weird at all that things become more the same as the world gets sort of smaller or, or you know as the world kind of progresses through time but it's disappointing yeah, I guess yeah. Well, and, you know, I think uh, as far as traditional music, <clears throat> it, it's kind of circular in nature, too. Um, you know, the, the folk music revivals of the 60s, I know in Nova Scotia there was another one. They usually last about 10 years in the 70s. I talked to a guy who was an immigrant from Ireland. They had a little group, and they made quite a living, uh, good living, uh, playing, you know, pub songs. And of course, in the 90s, you almost had the Awakening Gale, where you had the Rankin family, the Baron McNeils and um, Laura Smith, and they were singing really, you know, folk music with a, a 1990s twist. But again, that petered out after a while, and so we're about due for another another I'm renaissance. Sure. My brother and I used to, because uh, I, I learned first, and then I taught three of my brothers how to play. And oh. uh, so my youngest brother George, we would have a few beer, and I'd be at a party, and and play pipes with their hands on, you know, on the other's chant. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, people say, wow, look at that, look at that. And then I was reading uh, on the, uh, a bit about the McKinnons from East Lake Ainsley, who came from the Isle of Muck in 1820. And uh, my brother and sister, Big Farker, and his sister Annie would play pipes with uh, each other's hand on the on the chanter. So really, there's nothing new. <laughs> Yeah, right, just right. people forget it and then they say wow the same thing with Peabrock embellishments like when when John McKenzie's fancy came out people were just blown away the worldwide um, and that was in um, McFadden's book came out in the 70s and that was like that was breaking all the boundaries uh, you know sure. uh, uh, using a dree in a, in a hornpipe pool unheard of which was why and you know I was caught up in that bug too right uh, yeah. but then then when you hear these old guys do it, I don't know. There was, um, there was just a wonderful lift to their playing, which I don't think you can annotate in staff notation. I know the old McIntyre pipers were adamant in Clay Spay that their their kids not learn to read music because they were afraid it would change, yeah. change the way they would play. And if if you listen to that tape by Joe Neil McNeil, you'll find a lot of the older Gales kind of felt that way too. Um, and so, yeah, we had more pipers, and they were playing standardized technique, but, you know, they lost a bit, or you know, yeah. they lost a lot. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always have this love-hate relationship with, um, with competitions, you know, where I wonder, you know, I, I look at, you know, lowland piping or border pipes, um, and how that, that essentially is a, a dead tradition, and, you know, that's been revived pretty, pretty successfully, I think, mm -hmm. but... I, I wonder in, in Scotland anywhere if Highland Pipes would have gone that same way if it weren't for the competitions. So like there's a like, oh, it's good that well, <laughs> like those competitions clearly did some good of like keeping Peabrook around, keeping some of that music around, but also fundamentally changing it. Yeah. Um, 
just well the it's the, the old double edged sword analogy right um, and so yeah competition and you know the pipe ban uh, and you know I've heard people slag military piping and pipe bands but you know it's a big wide wonderful world out there and we should be looking yeah. to expand and be more inclusive and I still say that you know the pipe band or the kilted piper is still one of the biggest attractions for younger people to get interested in the, in the music I mean that's what kind of, that's yeah. the bait right that's what Right. draws them in, um, right. and it's it's a wonderful historical-based instrument. I mean, you look at tune titles, you know, the 79th Farewell to Gibraltar. Well, what, what were they doing in Gibraltar? Um, right. You know, the Earl of Mansfield, who in the heck was he? Um, then you get into Peabrock, you've got, you've got another historical angle. So, it, you know, yeah. people that are interested in history really like bagpipe music. <laughs> right. Because it's not just melody, it's, you know, what caused the melody to be composed in the first place and named uh, for a person right. event or uh, there's that bard that bardic kind of level to yeah, it right? yeah. well and yeah. you know if you go back far enough like Ian Dahl Mackay um, uh, composed the unjust incarceration and uh, the blind piper's obstinacy he was a bird as well and there is yeah. some referencing to uh, Patrick uh, McCrimmon being having some poems attributed attributed to him so you know these guys were the, they were the entertainers of society, right? right. And that's why when the when the harp started to give way to uh, the pipes, and I was reading Keith sing today, you know the the violin was coming in then too. Um, that's why you had so many dual musicians because you know if I'm making my living playing the harp, and all of a sudden some guy's cranking out a few tunes on a on a reeded instrument. Well, guess what? Yeah. If I want to have a job tomorrow, I better learn how to play that, or somebody, my son, who's going to follow my profession, better get on that too, right? right. And so you have that transition period where you've got one instrument, then you've got that transition period of both instruments, and then gradually, as in Cape Breton, piping became less favorable and the violin took off. The number of piping families, uh, like Ashley's granduncle was a piper, Right, uh, Kinnan Beaton, uh, Andrew Beaton, their grandfather, I think, was a piper and a fiddler. Um, and so, yeah, Mike McDougall's father and grandfather were pipers and fiddlers, but he, he concentrated on the violin. He didn't play the pipes. So you see, again, that transition period of dual musician, musicianship, and then all of a sudden they're just concentrating on one. Um, but really, for any instrument in society, <clears throat> it's, it's more utility. It's what you're doing in that in that society, and as long as society was, you know, fairly um, homogenous and isolated, then that's what people listen to. Um, and then, of course, with radio and television, and they replace the extended family as sort of any sort of yeah. cultural influencers. Uh, then they became to get a, a North American perspective, and. And the, you know even fiddle music. I remember as a kid growing up in in uh, industrialized centers that was hick music. Um, mm. You know, and square dancing. Oh, that's you know that's that's old people stuff, right? Um, right? But you know, having said that, um, my class. You know, I'd go to parties and somebody'd inevitably ask me to play a few tunes on the pipes, and you know. Um, most of them would go outside for a smoke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I remember. I remember. Uh, we had a. Uh, we had the pipe major. Some folks from 
a pipe band in, in Minneapolis come up to like I was in this kind of funny little parade band when I was in college of just all you know grade five or whatever pipers and but they brought this you know some some decent pipers up from McAllister pipe band to like do a, a lesson we went up to the bar afterwards and they got up to play and like it just didn't get a good response from the bar and these guys immediately were like no this isn't a good town for bagpiping and like i knew like i had played for those people like you just gotta wait about three more drinks yeah. and then they'll love it it'll be like neil diamond has come yeah. on you just gotta wait yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah yeah well and you know when the small pipes broke on the market my my late wife said you know she felt that most highland pipers were frustrated session musicians <laughs> and the reason shuttle pipes and small pipes took off is because at last we could sit in yeah. and not get people to leave a room. Um, <laughs> and, you know, with the different key chanters, you could play comfortably with other instruments and uh, in a more drawing room or, or front room yeah. setting. Um, and, you know, that her words have been you know, proven out because look at the number of people that are playing small pipes now. And they're, they're, and they're not just playing standard embellishments some of them are trying vibrato or you know half notes and um i play a gaelic air um and so on my ray sloan small pipes i have to close the uh, the devil holes over with both knees to get that it, it approximates a low f sharp uh, yeah and so somebody says how do you get an f sharp did you use keys i said no i use knees <laughs> I think uh, Stuart, Stuart Little has done something like that on the Highland Pipe. But yeah. you know what? I remember seeing Charlie Brown, I think, in Nova Scotia doing something like that, too, back in the 70s. Oh, so, yeah, God. there's nothing... Yeah. Nothing no, new yet. No, it just goes around, and, and people forget things, and then, you know, people try different things. But piping, I think, nowadays with the Internet, is it is so... I mean, I wish I had, you know, um, the opportunities in the seventies that kids have now, because you could, yeah. you, know, you could, any type of music you want, you know, you can learn it on the net. Although, you know, an old friend of mine, uh, he was lamenting the fact, he heard some of the pipers uh, in the 19, in the early 2000s, uh, because they used to have a small band in Sydney. And I taught there for a while, but people really, you know, they were doing it because their parents wanted them to do it. But really, you're wasting time with some people. If they don't have that bug, they're not going to really practice. And, and Patty McIntyre said, you know, I can't understand it, Barry. He said, you know, kids now have more opportunity, more time to practice. But they're, not, they're getting worse, he said, instead of better. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I thought about that, and I thought, you know what? For Cape Breton, there's probably all, always going to be a piper in Cape Breton, but there won't always be a Cape Breton piper. think that is a more pessimistic tone than Barry generally takes. So I feel slightly bad ending on it, but what is clearly true to me is that any Cape Breton pipers presently or in the future will be very lucky to have the benefit of Barry's work to guide them for what it has been in the past and kind of can be in the future. So be sure to check out these these books. 
they're outstanding. Plate Lake Ysing, it's a little bit harder to find now because um, it's kind of sold out, basically, uh, in a lot of places. But I was still able to snag up a copy in some bagpipe supply companies in the States. So um, if you don't have a copy yet, look for it and get it. Uh, it's two-volume set. Volume two has all the music in it. Volume one has a lot of um, research and stuff. So check that out. Gathering the Clans is still available. Check out kbrettonpiper.com, Barry's website. There is... Uh, vintage bagpipe parts for sale some of his music books um, he's also got a kind of lovely digital museum and archives to see there full of photographs of original instruments and recordings of uh, King Button Pipers uh, yeah if you like the show you can support it on patreon.com slash we're going out now on Barry Shears playing some tunes that he wrote on small pipes with David McIsaac accompanying him on guitar recorded these in his apartment house in 1998 uh, we should be back in a couple of weeks to finish off the last episode of season five cheers cheers